This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In recent years, there's been a lot of work to bring attention to the exploitation of minors in developing countries, especially in Africa. At the forefront has been a nonprofit called Impact, which helps decrease conflict around natural resources in Africa. Impact is actually an acronym that stands for the Indigenous Movement for Peace Advancement and Conflict Transformation. Their work takes them to various mining sites around the continent. If you've ever heard the phrase blood diamonds, you can partially think Impact, which used to be called Partnership Africa Canada. Their pioneering campaign in the 90s on the human rights abuses around diamond harvesting earned them a nomination for a Nobel Peace Prize in 2003. Efforts to publicize the link between the atrocities, the warlords, and diamonds paid off. In 2003, the Kimberley process came into being. It requires member governments to certify that exports and imports are free from blood diamonds. But Impact also helps communities benefit more from their local resources rather than getting them stolen by armed militias. One of the main ways they do this is by conducting research and supporting artisanal or small-scale miners. Lynn Gitu is a program leader at Impact. Artisanal mining is the kind of mining that is informal and that involves the use of rudimentary tools to extract minerals or mineral ores from the ground. So the artisanal mining sector accounts for about 90% of the minerals that are produced in Africa. It's a major economic driver and an important source of income for men and increasingly women. What we have found is that 30% of the many millions of people that work in the artisanal mining sector are women. And according to Gitu, mining is much more profitable than other fields for women. Our research, our work with women directly has shown us that when they are supported, they often earn 300 times more from the mining sector than from any other sector. From Foreign Policy, this is the Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women. I'm Rena Nainen. Later on, we'll talk more to Lynn Gitu about how impact has successfully decreased conflicts around natural resources and the most effective ways to support women in mining. But first, we'll go to Uganda, where artisanal stone mining is a lot different from the big operations you might see in the West. Here, individual miners seek out exposed rock formations on public land. They then use hammers and picks to break off chunks of limestone. Finally, they crush the larger rocks into stones to be sold by the truckload to builders and hardware shops. It's hard work. Historically, stone miners have been men, but now that's beginning to change. Reporter Leah Kahunde brings us the story of how women are breaking into the industry with the help of male allies. It is a very hot day in Kitgum, a district in northern Uganda that is rural but also plentiful with large granite rock deposits. Achan Paska is a 32-year-old mother of five. She is sitting on the ground on the side of the road wearing a very long brown skirt and a loose t-shirt. 
In front of her is a large stone and on top of that is a bunch of smaller stones. In her right hand, she is holding a large sledgehammer and is repeatedly smashing the smaller stones until they become the size of grapes. Achan is one of many women selling crushed stones on this stretch of road. They are usually bought by home builders who use them for building foundations. It is grueling work, but Achan does not seem faced. Achan does this work five hours a day, crushing stones, which is the major source of income for her family. In a day, she can make up to $40 doing this work, which is quite a lot of money for this area. At 3 p.m., Achan starts her other job, the one where she does not get paid. Her home is a short distance away. It consists of four grass-thatched huts. When I see her, she is sweeping the floor of her compound. She has a six-month-old daughter on her back. Achan has been through so much to get to this point. She, like many women in northern Uganda, were displaced by the fighting instigated by the warlord Joseph Kony about a decade ago. Joseph Kony has been on a murderous rampage that has lasted almost three decades, killing thousands and building one of the biggest armies of child soldiers in history. The Lord Resistance Army killed tens of thousands and displaced more than two million people in Uganda. Many became orphans and child brides because of the war, including Achan. Achan says she was raped, became pregnant and was married off when she was just 17 years old. Her husband was 40 years old. Money was tight and she was forced to stay at home, not working. She also faced a lot of physical abuse. After querying, my husband beat me. Then after, you stay together. Five years into this abusive marriage, her fortunes changed as her husband passed away. By then, she had two children and no source of income and was concerned that she would become homeless. So she married another man. He was a local politician who treated her better and gave her a home to live in. However, Achan was still not satisfied with just having the bare minimum. She wanted more for her family and decided to look for work. Achan had good timing. In 2020, Maurice Obedi was a social worker living in Ketgum. He saw the need for women to earn money outside their home and worked to create a women's saving and empowerment group. The groups encouraged women to pull their money into one large saving. Together, their saving could bring in larger dividends than could individually. Within a year, more than 100 women had joined and their groups expanded to offer training and mental health support. We have five groups that receive the Women Entrepreneurship Program. They call OWEB. So government are supporting them. Additionally, Obedi helped the women's group receive financial assistance from non-government organizations like Joy for Children. When Achan joined the group, she realized the potential for stone crushing to provide a meaningful income for her and her family. Speaking through a translator, Achan told me one of the biggest benefits she received was financial literacy training. They were trained before they were registered on how to do the business. They are trained how to do the selling. They are trained how to do the marketing now. 
By pooling her resources with other women, she was able to borrow more money to hire salespeople to help her market and sell her crush stones. This increased her profits. Achan then formally registered her stone-crushing business with the District Mining Authority. These further increased her access to credit and allowed her to tap into government funds that were designated to assist small-scale women miners like herself. With her newfound financial stability, Achan can provide for her household. She even started subsistence farming to diversify her income. Another woman who has benefited from this program is Margaret Adiero. She is a 60-year-old widow and stone miner. She is a mother of eight and also a survivor of Konya's civil war. Margaret started her mining activities during the long insurgency, but after her husband died, she struggled to make ends meet for her large family. Since joining the cooperative, Margaret's translator explains how her mining business has improved. Like a Chan, she has been able to access more money and grow her business. One of the benefits has been to be able to negotiate a higher price for her stones through the collective. Now that they have engaged now in a group, the prices of the stone has improved also. With extra income from the stone, Margaret has been able to diversify her income and has begun selling iron sheets for roofing. A Chan's second husband, as you might remember, is a local politician. He was initially worried about her joining the women's collective, especially because it involved spending time away from home. This is something the social worker Mauricio Bedi encountered quite often. The negativity of the husbands of our mothers and, and girls. They don't want their women to come and be with the, with the, within the groups. But his solution was to openly include husbands in their wives' financial literacy training sessions. We will invite the husband to come for this meeting. So that strategy has stabilized the mindset of men to say, oh, this my wife is going for a VSL saving. They're discussing nice things. Achan says having a husband attend her training sessions has helped her marriage, as Achan's translator told me. So it has brought now the unity between her and the husband. They now work together, they do, do the querying activities together with the husband. To buy, buy food, they send their children to school now. Morris says having the husband attending removes the mystery and mistrust of having their wives away from home. He says he sees a transformation of men who come in doubting the program to then becoming active supporters of it. Morris says helping women to achieve their goals is in a way him repaying a debt to the women that have helped him, in particular his own mother. So my mother went through a lot of difficulties in supporting me and married children. That really attached me, attracted me to be close to women. Actually, most of my friends are women. <laughs> <laughs> For Morish, his work is about a lot more than helping women stone miners' lives better. It is about making Uganda better. When you empowered a woman, you empowered the whole world. Women empowerment, it is very critical. That makes the happiness at home. That make the happiness in the district. That make the happiness in the country. And also, my request, and I beg to Maine, please support your wife. Support your girl child to school. Strengthen them, open up their eyes. This is my request to Maine in Uganda and worldwide. For the hidden economics of remarkable women, 
I am Leah Kahunde. Coming up, more from my conversation with Lynn Gitu, a program leader in Uganda for the nonprofit Impact. She shares what her organization has successfully done to decrease conflicts around natural resources and the best way to empower women in mining. More on that after the break. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production of Foreign Policy. I'm Rena Nainen. Before the break, you heard about how a male social worker in Uganda supported women miners in part by influencing their husbands. Now we turn to a conversation I had with Lynn Gitu, program leader at the nonprofit Impact. She explains how Impact generally decreases conflict around minerals. And then she shares what she learned from a project called Digging for Equality, which focuses on women in mining. So when you approach mining, how do you ensure that it's as safe as possible? Well, everybody who is in the mining sector is in need to make some money. So the artisanal miner, the gold trader, or the mineral trader, whatever mineral it is, the one who is trading goods and services, everyone is in the mining sector to get some money. And so what we have done for a long time is, first of all, start by working with the highest level, which is government. Governments are the regulators of any mining sector. And so we've worked alongside many governments within the Great Lakes region, providing training, technical expertise, linking them to international experts, providing sensitization and understanding about the sector as a whole, And then from there, we move sort of to the national level and we've worked with civil society organizations, community-based organizations to make sure that now finally the artisanal miners and their communities are reached out to. And so doing development work in the mining sector and especially in the artisanal mining sector means that you have to help the miners and the communities surrounding the sector to understand, one, what the challenges are within the sector, to understand the the harmful effects of mining work on the environment, on their own health. Women are given an opportunity to participate in decision-making as we raise awareness about their rights and the benefits that come from allowing women to participate in the sector. If you were to create a campaign, much like the Blood Diamond campaign that you initially had great success with, what would you say to raise international awareness about the plight of female miners? I would say that traceability and due diligence, these two words are a big conversation around the world. I think what I would say is that the international community needs to get interested in supporting governments within the mining regions of Africa to be able to implement these grand ideas of traceability and due diligence. It's not one-sided. You can't have a law at the international level 
and the producer country doesn't have a law or doesn't have the tools to make sure that their mining sector is transparent and that there is capacity to do traceability and to do due diligence. So there's need for support to governments first and foremost, and then to artisanal mining communities. You mentioned traceability. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and and how you achieve it? Generally, the issue of traceability is about just following the mineral and there are different actors on every stage. The government is there, so the government will do mining inspection. The trader, the gold trader is there. That gold trader should know where their mineral came from and whether there are any human rights violations happening at the mine site where the mineral came from. There are export people. There are people who have export licenses. There are government people at the borders of these different countries. Even those ones are involved. And then there is the international refiner, jeweler, who receives that mineral finally. They too have some processes to undertake to make sure that this mineral that they are putting into their final product did not come from a place where there were any human rights violations. Already, there is something called, within the Great Lakes region, there is something called the International Conference on the Great Lakes region. This is a regional body that brings together 12 countries that surround the Democratic Republic of Congo. This International Conference on the Great Lakes region was supported to develop, actually by impact, something called the Regional Certification Mechanism for Minerals. These minerals were specifically critical in the production of many electronics that we use in our world today. When we talk about mining, it often happens in conflict zones. Tell me a little bit about how that affects the process. Armed conflict anywhere near mining areas means basically that these armed groups will use any proceeds that come from the sale of that mineral to continue whatever agenda, whatever conflict agenda they have. And so nipping that in the bud, nipping the trade of minerals that come from mines that are controlled by armed groups will always be helpful. It's regional work to make sure that the mines where there are any armed groups are kind of starved of demand. And so they can't be able to sell their minerals. And once they don't sell, obviously it reduces the amount of money that they have to continue the conflict. How do you successfully fight an armed group that's involved in mining trade? How can anybody come up against them? You starve the demand because you put certain rules. If you put certain rules in place, for example, if there is a requirement by the government, there's a law that is passed by a government saying no mineral will cross our borders legitimately without a certificate of mine site inspection, right? And the mine site inspection has certain criteria. First of all, the mine site must be accessible. So as long as a government official is not allowed into a mine site by an armed group, then you can be sure that the mineral that comes out of that mine site will not have a certificate. Then how does it cross the border? Most likely it will be a challenge for this mineral to cross the border. And when countries work together surrounding a place where there is armed conflict, it means that even smuggling is reduced. And knowing where to put the chokeholds, that can make a difference in the whole process distribution. So tell me more about 
what roles women commonly hold in mining and what barriers do they face in this particular sector? Women will typically take the role of crushing the rock. So using their hands and equipment like hammers or iron bars, they will heat this rock until it breaks up into, I would say, medium-sized pieces. Women are also involved in the panning or the washing of that crushed rock. Women are also involved in trading, depending on the advancement of a particular artisanal mining community. Additionally, on the periphery, most of the time women are involved in providing goods and services to the miners in the places where the mining is being done. What do you think it is? that people don't realize about women in the mining industry and the current conditions right now? I think one of the biggest things that people don't realize is that for many women in Africa, it's difficult for them to organize together. So the efforts around formalization and legalization of the artisanal mining sector will often talk about things like, oh, let the artisanal miners form groups or associations or cooperatives so that they'll be able to access the legal supply chain or they'll be able to access financing from governments or from financial institutions. But for women to get together in groups is not a small issue. And we've seen that over and over in different parts of our work. So I think for me, the two things... Organizing for women is difficult and they need to be supported to do this. And then access to credit or to finance to be able to invest in the mining sector is also difficult, more difficult for women even than men. I understand your project also helped women register businesses because of this new mining law in Uganda. It passed in 2022. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that law? Yes. The first thing that the new mining law did was create a provision for an artisanal mining license and everything that comes with that, a small-scale mining license, this was very, very significant because what those new provisions do is allow artisanal miners to have a first step towards formalization. So formalization is not just about forming a group. It's about getting onto the legal supply chain. So that means as a group, you're able to open up a bank account, for example, or even in a microfinance institution, you're able to open up an account. It means you are recognized by the law. So you are able to go to any ministry, any government ministry in the country and access whatever services are available there. Before that, you wouldn't have that opportunity. And then on and on, as you grow, then you access the international market. This project has also provided a lot of technical assistance to these women. What exactly did they train them to be able to do? We trained them on a number of things. One of those things was understanding the laws that exist in the different countries. This helped them a lot because, for example, in Uganda, the women were not organized in a particular group or alone, just as women. But as they began to understand the provisions of their new Uganda mining law, they realized that they wouldn't be able to access a mining license or even a mineral processing license if they were not organized in a formal group. And so they came together, 30 women, and formed a cooperative, which is in the process right now of uh, working with the Uganda Ministry of Energy 
to access a mining license. Hmm. Your organization's internal evaluation showed that women miners who participated in this three-year project, they were able to increase their income by 60%. How exactly did they do that? That's an incredible increase. They increased their income by working together, by understanding that when I bring one dollar or, or the equivalent in Uganda shillings, when I bring one dollar and then my friend brings two dollars and my other friend brings three, because we are working together, together we are able to have an amount that can help push us forward. We're grateful for you for giving us this perspective on women in mining in Africa. It was a pleasure to be part of this. Next week on the podcast, we visit women in the fishing industry in Kenya and learn about the obstacles they face there. For a woman to give up her body to be able to access fish, this is wrong in every single word of it. But for many women, this is not a choice for them. Some women resort into the practices of sex for fish. That's next week on the podcast. And that does it for today's show. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of Foreign Policy. It's made possible through funding in part from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is hosted by me, Rena Nainan. Our show is produced by Rosie Julin. Our senior producer, Laura rosbrow Tellum. Rob Sachs is our managing director. Claudia Tady is our marketing manager. Leah Kahunde contributed reporting for this episode. And if you like our show, share the love. If you're on social media, post about it. And if not, we hope you tell a friend how much you appreciate the show. Thanks again, and I'll see you back in our feed next week.